Don't you think that I can see you're struggling? Don't you think that I can feel your pain? I hear your cries every time in the middle of the Greetings and welcome to the Logical Belief Ministries podcast. I'm your host, Jason Mullet. You can visit our website at logicalbelief.org. Uh, you can watch these podcasts on YouTube. You can search for and subscribe to the channel there. Uh, you can also find us on iTunes. Just search for Logical Belief from your favorite podcast catcher. Um, if you are searching from an Android device, make sure to click the checkbox to search the iTunes database. I have had some people um, note that they've had difficulty finding the podcast on Android devices. So just so that you're aware of that. Um, if you have a question, uh, a word of encouragement, um, or just a comment that you want to send me, you can send all those to jason at logicalbelief.org. Just be aware, however, if you do send me an email, you are giving me permission to read it on the air. Ohio Fire is coming to Columbus, Ohio, April 8th and 9th. Hosted by Striving for Eternity Ministries, Ohio Fire will encourage and train Christians to mature in their faith and share the gospel with the lost. Hear Phil Johnson and Dr. Thomas White on the topic, the Word of God. And after the conference, you'll have a chance to hit the streets of Columbus with trained team leaders. Ohio Fire, April 8th and 9th. For details and to register, go to ohiofire.org. All righty. Well, this weekend we are going to be returning to our topic uh, with our guest, Kevin Wagler, on the Anabaptists. Um, Just to kind of recap a little bit uh, what we have discussed and talked about in previous episodes, we have uh, discussed um, the early part of the movement, uh, the Munsterites, the movement coming out of uh, Switzerland, the Swiss Brethren, Um, Felix Mons, Conrad Grebel, and uh, some of those others. Uh, The early parts of the movement, we talked about uh, some topics like celestial flesh, uh, a doctrine that um, was held by many of the early Anabaptists. We looked at um, some of their other views, how many of the Anabaptists uh, held other various um, uh, anti-Trinitarian views, and, um, and so forth. So today we're going to... Uh, With Kevin, we're going to be jumping into looking um, a little bit further uh, down the um, corridor of time into the Anabaptist movement. We're going to be looking into, uh, which we've already mentioned, O.B. Phillips and Dirk Phillips, but we're going to start digging into more Menno Simons. Uh, We'll talk about uh, the Schleitheim Confession of Faith and um, and, uh, up to the separation uh, between the Mennonites and the Amish, with a man by the name of Jacob Ammon. And uh, we'll kind of end it out there, and then we'll probably have next weekend uh, our final episode on this series, and we'll talk about the current-day beliefs of the Anabaptist group, especially the Amish and the Mennonites, from our own personal experiences um, growing up in those movements. So I want to welcome uh, Kevin back. I'm going to switch the screen here so you guys can see Kevin. So Kevin Wagler is back. And uh, you guys can go to previous uh, episodes uh, where he introduced himself and gave us a little bit of information about him. But uh, um, so you guys can go back. I would encourage uh, you, if you haven't listened uh, to any of the previous episodes before jumping into this one, that you would 
um, you would go to the previous episodes because some of them, they kind of build off one another. So, so uh, Kevin, what we wanted to do today was kind of dig a little bit more into Menno Simons. So uh, let's, let's, let's just start talking about uh, Menno Simons a little bit. What are, what are your uh, thoughts on Menno Simons and some of his beliefs? Can you maybe briefly introduce him uh, to our audience? Well, as, as we look at the history, I mean, we see he started out as a uh, Catholic priest and uh, as he started to read the Bible, search the scriptures, he uh, seen that the the beliefs of the Catholic Church didn't match what he seen in in the Bible. So, and then uh, his brother was part of one of the re- some of the rebellion where they was taking over a castle, and that led to it. And then uh, there was another uh, like a barber or something who uh, gave his life and. Uh, because of his convictions, which led Mental to, uh, I guess it kind of, you know, how would you say, made him conscious of his own. You know, he was he he held beliefs contrary to the to the church, but still he was. And he was a practicing Roman Catholic priest, I believe, during this time, right? Yes, and uh, so he. Uh, that's when he uh, left the Catholic Church. He was a. Uh, baptized by ob phillips okay so okay and um and then sometime after that him and ob phillips uh kind of broke apart ob phillips kind of recanted from the movement of the anabaptists and um and wrote some about it uh and uh many of the early anabaptists uh in the group especially that menno simons has a lot of influence on were called the obionites actually and menno simons kind of took over that that group Yes, it the the following that Mental Simons had early on was the Obeides after Obi Phillips recanted of the Anabaptist faith and went back to the Roman Catholic Church. Yeah, and uh, and, and Mental Simons kind of took it on from there. I think he was uh, he was heavily influenced by um, Melchior Hoffman. He uh, he was influenced by him and also the teachings of Obi Phillips. Uh, prior to Obi's own uh, recantation of the movement, yeah, the the biggest thing that he uh, got from from Hoffman was the celestial flesh. Yes, and um, let's let's briefly recap uh, for our listeners. Um, if those of you that have not listened, I would encourage you to listen to the previous episode about about the celestial flesh view. But just just briefly uh, fill in our listeners to to what that view is uh and then we'll move on from there but uh, what what is celestial flesh well they didn't deny the outright deny the humanity of christ they they said that christ was born from mary but not of mary that uh he got his uh humanness originated in heaven okay so denying that he was specifically of the seed of david uh the seed of the woman and so forth. Uh, instead, he had a flesh that came from from heaven. Yeah, I mean, in in the true sense, denying true humanity like of Christ. The, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. So um, that that was a belief that many Mennonites today, I don't think, would even know that Menno Simons held to that particular view. Yeah, that one there, they kind of skip over and don't really talk about. But you do see it some in in the modern writings of the Mennonites, but not a lot. Um, I've personally encountered uh, some modern-day Mennonites that don't necessarily hold to the celestial flesh view, 
but they hold to more of a monophysite uh, view, which is that um, that the human nature of Christ was basically absorbed and dissolved and uh, eliminated by his divine nature. They don't look at the orthodox view of the hypostatic union, and they they really only look at Christ as being more of a divine being. Um, in fact, it, it seems to be that they maybe have some um, Gnostic-type uh, tendencies in their view of the material world being more evil, whereas the spiritual world being what is good. Well, yeah, I think that the Gnostic view is definitely, I mean, where that originated from was, you know, because that was what they were denying was, you know, Christ, there was, it wasn't possible that he was of, of the flesh of Mary, you know, born of Mary because that would have gave him, you know, the, the origin, you know, the sin nature. So that's what they were denying. Which is actually kind of interesting because um, many modern day uh, Anabaptists, uh, many of them actually, it's very interesting, uh, actually would deny even original sin. They're almost, uh, uh, some are f almost full-blown Pelagians, uh, where, uh, and I think that's been, and we'll maybe touch that a little bit more in our personal experience with, uh, in the Mennonite and Anabaptist movement. Uh, I was recently actually at my gr own, own grandfather's funeral, and I was listening to an Amish uh, preacher preach a message, and, and he said that, uh, that that we incline, we lean towards sin, <laughs> uh, but that is about as far as he could get to uh, the the sin nature of of man. And in fact, in my own experience growing up in a Mennonite church, um, uh, I I was uh, told uh, in the church that I grew up in that uh, by some people, I don't know that everyone would have agreed with this within the church, but that that we are not. There is no such thing as original sin. They would have denied that particular doctrine. Now, that's not universal. I don't want to paint all Mennonites and Amish into that same basket. There would definitely be some that I would think would hold to the more orthodox view of original sin, but many of them do not. Yeah, uh, my uncle, I talked to him a little bit, and he, to some degree, like he denies original sin. I didn't spend a whole lot of time flushing out exactly what he meant by that but uh yet to some degree is denies original sin so yeah and so it is interesting that that uh, celestial flesh view kind of flowed out of that but um so menno simons has uh, a lot of uh, influence um, on the anabaptist movement in fact there's a large contingency of them that would even take upon his name and um and many, uh, even the group that we would call the Amish, um, would have more originally been followers of Menno Simons, but then later on they broke off and they followed a man and took upon the name. The, the word Amish actually does come from um, a man by the name of Jacob Ammon, and that's where the, the, term, the term Amish comes from. And so that's where you, we see the break between the, um, the Mennonites and the Amish. And we'll, t we'll talk about that in a little bit more detail uh, later, some of the reasons for those splits. Uh, between the two, but we'll see that they're not necessarily doctrinal type splits. They're splits based upon practice. And do you want to kind of jump in a little bit there, Kevin, and just kind of talk about uh, uh, the Anabaptist um, uh, focus on practice and not as much focus on doctrine and theology? Well, as we can see, looking at the confessions, they were all, all the reform of the Anabaptists was practice. They were 
there was no reform in doctrine. We we see the the salvation. You know, they went with you know it's by 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 grace through faith. But still, I mean, they were they completely disagreed with the reformers on uh, monergistic salvation. They they held to the Roman Catholic view of of synergistic salvation. Yeah. Where they focused on um, on man's actions being the ones that result in his salvation, and also his maintenance of his salvation. What's what? Go ahead and uh, just say what you what you usually say about the Anabaptists. The Anabaptists were were the Armenians before Armenians were cool. Yeah, <laughs> that's what uh, Kevin says sometimes. So. Uh, <laughs> So yeah, they they focused heavily on man's ability not only maintain his salvation, but also to be the one who initiates his own salvation. And that's what make whenever you have that view, that's what leads to 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 sanctify. Instead of looking to sanctify hearts, you're looking to sanctify practice. And yeah. that was that that was the Anabaptist movement. I mean, it was it was to purify the actions to pur- purify the outward you know the outward practice yeah outward practice of, of the church and i mean we see it you know jesus addressing the pharisees you know you know you you clean the outside of the cup but the inside is full of dead, dead man's, man's bones. bones yeah yeah absolutely and i think uh, your point is well uh, can is actually seen very well in one of their early confessions, the the Schleitheim Confession, which was a confession of the Swiss Baptists in around 1527 in the in the uh, the town of Schleitheim, Switzerland, and uh, that confession contains seven articles, um, and the articles the seven articles are on baptism. It's uh, it's on the ban, which is something that uh, we haven't really touched on uh, much. Um, on this episode, but it's a very it's a common view, especially among the Amish. Uh, the I say that was what one of the big things of the between the, yeah between yeah. Jacob Ammon and the rest of the Mennonites was this was this second article of the Schleitheim Confession. Uh, they have an article on the breaking of bread. They have an article on the separation of evil, which I would say that um, the Amish and Mennonites, uh, especially the Amish, would attend towards more asceticism and monasticism type views, even though they would not be monastic maybe in the same sense that uh, um, of the monasticism in the early church, but they were were definitely involved in uh, strict separation from the rest of the world. Um, And also uh, they had an article on the pastors of the church. They had an article on the sword or Christian pacifism or non-resistance. And then an article, the seventh article on oaths. But notice how this confession has, has nothing about man's state and sin has has no has no uh, clarity on the doctrine of the Trinity, has no clarity on the atonement of Christ, has no um, has no distinguish distinguishing what their beliefs are on uh, uh, justification by faith, um, uh, biblical sanctification. I mean, these are not topics that were even within their confession. Uh, some of their later confessions have have some. Um, have some mention of some of these particular topics, uh, but they don't flesh them out in any way with the clarity of many of the Reformed confessions, the Belgic Confession, 
the Heidelberg Catechism, the Westminster Confession of Faith, the 1689 London Baptist Confession, we don't see the detail and the uh, clarity which these early uh, Reformed confessions uh, give. We don't see that within the Anabaptist movement. Any any thoughts on that, Kevin? Well, yeah, I mean, they always give give the answer. You know that this they were severely persecuted, and that was the reason for such a short. I mean, it was a basic, and I'm sure there was some truth to that. But if you look at the movement as a whole, you didn't see it anywhere. I mean, there was in early one of the first sessions we uh, we did the had the chart with a comparison you know even the modern day and they're like in what 57 percent agreement with the roman catholic Catholic. church and only 19 percent agreement with the reformed church i mean we see it still today that their doctrine they you don't really see a whole lot of difference in their their doctrine i mean it's same as the roman catholic church it was it was the practice it was how they lived it out, but as doctrinally they were they one had, and the same. They had different practices from the Roman Catholic Church, but the fundamental underlying doctrine, especially of salvation, is Roman Catholic to its core. Oh, yes, it's, it's exactly the same. Just a different set of practices wrapped around it, <clears throat> which is um, the, the one thing that you'll find among Anabaptist circles uh, today is is a bigotry against Roman Catholicism. But it's not a bigotry founded in doctrine. It's a bigotry that's founded um, in simply tradition. Uh, it's not, they don't, they, they would never, they, their actual view on, and their arguments against sola fide, for example, are the same ones that I encounter when I talk to a Roman Catholic. Yeah, I mean, they, they argue, the, I mean, most of their arguments, when if you're talking about salvation, they will take the exact point of view of, of a Roman Catholic on it. Yeah, it's uh, absolutely true. It's interesting in my discussions with uh, modern-day Anabaptists, and uh, many of them, for example, will go to James chapter 2, verse 24, and make the exact same arguments that I hear Roman Catholics making uh, when it comes to s- uh, justification by faith. Uh, would, everyone always talks about Luther, you know, uh, calling James, you know, the epistle, epistle of straw, but yeah. we have to realize, I mean, that was... That was the Catholics who used it against him powerfully. I mean, he was always fighting against it. So Yeah. If uh, those of you who um, listen to this podcast regularly, I did do a podcast uh, last week on the five solas of the Reformation, and I actually did um, a in-depth uh, exegesis of James chapter 2 and that particular text. So if you're interested in that, Go back and listen. Uh, I touched sola fide and did an exegesis of James chapter 2 um, in the beginning of that episode. So um, so uh, that is, it's, it's just, yeah, it's very interesting. While they have uh, a bigotry against the Roman Catholic Church, it's not a bigotry and it's not a division for them that's grounded in, in sound biblical doctrine. Instead, it's... Uh, it's a simply a difference of practice between the two, and so they both kind of look at each other uh, haughtily down their noses at, uh, you know, my practices are better than your practices. Well, I mean, if you look at it, it's self-righteousness. Is, yeah. I mean, the only way to really explain it, I mean, each one thinks, hey, the, 
my practice is better than your practice. Yes, ab- absolutely. And um, <clears throat> that's what uh, that's what we see, and it's played out in the fact that that's how they're even their confessions and stuff are laid out. So um, anything else that you wanted to uh, uh, bring up on Menno Simons that you wanted to talk about with him? Well, we touched the the celestial flesh. They also held the non-resistance, which passed on down through. Yes, and it's uh that particular doctrine is one that really comes out of the Anabaptist view of the Sermon on the Mount, and we wanted to talk about that briefly. But the Anabaptists would be if you if you ever encountered somebody that says he calls himself a red letter Christian. Um, the Anabaptists were the early ones that did this, where they really focused on, uh, and I would say the words of Christ out of context, um, and they didn't look at. Uh, uh, I'll let you just kind of jump in on that. What are what's what, I see you well, want to say something on that? So, <laughs> yeah, I mean that was that was their basic hermeneutic, and like you will find writings where the, well, they will actually you know they'll say you know where there seems to be contradiction they'll put the word seems to be but they're basically yeah. whenever you find a contradiction you all you always go to to the words of jesus and and you follow the example that or you know just either what he specifically said or the way he lived life you know his word and his behavior trumped everything else in the bible so yeah absolutely and actually we were um I think it was, uh, I'm trying to remember, we talked about the, the Anabaptists last week. Uh, I think it was, uh, I believe it was Hans Hans Deck, Denk, uh, who uh, explicitly in his writings actually said, yeah, there's many things that seem to be, uh, there seem to be many contradictions in Scripture, but, uh, you know, that's basically that's just how it is. <laughs> uh, yeah. And when, just deal with it, you know. Yeah, he was, he was big into the inward word. Yeah, the inner the, word over the outer or word. Or the yeah, exactly, over the um the dead letter as they would refer to it as. Um so yeah, the uh and I want to briefly just go to some scripture when it comes to the Anabaptist view of the Sermon on the Mount. And unfortunately, the Anabaptists take the Sermon on the Mount and they rip it out of its Jewish context. They rip it out of its its context within uh, the first century, and they also rip it out of its uh, context of the Mosaic Law um, and all the intricacies that go, everything that Jesus spoke about uh, there in the Sermon on the Mount uh, was not Jesus. The, the, the fun, fundamental view of the Anabaptists was that Jesus was establishing a new law. He was uh, uh, abrogating the Mosaic Law and he was eliminating it, and he was replacing it with a new and better law. That's the way that they look at it. Yeah, they they took the Sermon on the Mount to be the new law. Yeah. Rather than in the context of Jesus was expanding the old law, he was he was taking it from you know the from the letter to the spirit. He was not abrogating anything or or installing new law. He he was he was simply expanding on the law and he was often correcting the jews views of the old testament law you know for example their view on on vengeance eye for an eye tooth for a tooth using it for personal vengeance when that was not the that 
that uh, the Lex Talianus law of the Old Testament, eye for eye and tooth for tooth, was a was a command given to the magistrates, to the judges, on how we dish out justice uh, within the covenant relationship of God to the children of Israel and not a mandate for personal vengeance. And that is what Jesus was correcting, and that's often what is used then by the Mennonites and the Anabaptists and the Amish to come up with their doctrine of non-resistance. Well, I mean, even today in, in the postmodern church, you, we see an overemphasis on the New Testament, it just the, including the whole New Testament. And we have to understand, you know, in, in 2 Timothy, you know, Paul writes, you know, all Scripture was get, is inspired by God. and It's profitable have, for yeah. reproof and correction and righteousness, yeah. Yeah, and, and we have to understand, like, these, these letters, the first century church got these letters, and they were— they were to help interpret what was already taught in the Old Testament. I mean, it, it's not some new new set of rules or regulations or something new. And I, like even today when we, we have those emphasizing, you know, the love of God, you know, Jesus just loves you. He wants you to, you know, to accept him. And then that's where that comes from, that yeah. they've completely missed the, Miss the mark. I just want to briefly reach here uh, or read read here in uh, the Sermon on the Mount. The, right at the beginning of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, he says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, he says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, any... Whoever relaxes on one of the least of these commandments, teaches others to do the same, will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And what the early Anabaptists and even modern-day Anabaptists do is they, they simply don't, don't acknowledge Jesus' words at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, where, where he talked about that he's not. And here's where we need to... Uh, look carefully as biblical scholars and those who love the word of God and recognize that all scripture, as Kevin quoted Second Timothy uh, 3.16, that all scripture is profitable for reproof and correction and righteousness. We need to look at, you know, what is it that Jesus fulfilled uh, in the Old Testament, in the Mosaic Law? What were what are things that he fulfilled in his in his life, in his death, in his burial and his resurrection and what are the things that are moral obligations that still apply to the believer because God's own immutable character that has not changed since the beginning of creation till the present. And so uh, those moral obligations that are based upon the nature of God himself that we as his image bearers are obliged to, to follow and, and obey um, and by which we will even be judged um, it has not changed from the beginning of creation till today. It's it's uh, just as much a sin to um, to be a covenant breaker and commit adultery or to lie or to murder um, today as it was uh, the moment after creation and uh, within the Mosaic Law until the present. So so we can see that consistency, and we can also see. I want to briefly read another text uh, before we go on. Uh, to to look at Paul's view of the Old Testament law. And in 
Paul's beautiful layout of justification by faith alone in Romans chapter 3 at the very end of the chapter after he had just gone down talking about how uh, we are saved by grace alone through faith alone. Uh, he goes in verse 31 says, do not do we then overthrow the law by this faith? And uh, there's where we have the Greek word meganoito by no means. Uh, on the contrary, we uphold the law. And so uh, there's where we have to make a distinction, I think, sometimes between civil, ceremonial, and moral law. But uh, we uphold the law as Christians, and we uphold the law of God. We recognize that our salvation does not come by our adherence to that law in any way, but we should uphold the law of God. And any thoughts on that, Kevin? Well, yeah, I mean, that, as you're saying, you know, the moral law was— that was given based on God's character, which is unchanging. Yeah. Where, you know, the civil and the ceremonial law was was not. And was and is what Christ fulfilled. And the civil law was um, the covenant relationship between the nation of Israel and their obligations to how they should govern their nation based upon their covenant with God. And um, and so we have to recognize those particular distinctions uh, within uh, the Mosaic law and to recognize that God's moral law was never was never designed or intended to make anyone righteous. There's only one who's ever obeyed that perfectly. And that was Jesus Christ himself, our advocate, the one who died in our place. And uh, the moral law is there to demonstrate and show us our need of a savior that we cannot do this on our own. We cannot accomplish this. We need the righteousness of Christ um, imputed to us uh, through God's gracious act and free act of grace. And so um, any more thoughts you had on that uh, um, on the on the Anabaptist view on the Sermon on the Mount? Uh, well, let's say that pretty well covers that and then just get into to their to their view of salvation. Well, yeah, well, their their view of um that man's action is what results in his salvation and his continual action in those is what maintains his salvation and not the uh, inner working of the Holy Spirit and regeneration, um, which is uh, the true gospel of grace. And, I mean, that's all based on their interpretation of the Sermon on the Mount. I mean, they, they, they see that as the new the new law, the, what we are to practice is what they see yeah. laid out there, and that's... Where they come up with their with their view of salvation and maintaining salvation, yeah, in many ways, uh the Anabaptists were um everything from semi pelagian to full blown Pelagian in their in their doctrine of salvation and um and for those of you that don't know those terms, you can google those, but Pelagius was a early heretic in the early church, a british monk who who denied original sin. Um, who denied um, the depravity of man against Augustine's view of God's grace and salvation, and the Anabaptists were simply just following the old heresies of of the uh, early church. There's nothing new under the sun. Yeah, and uh, like part of the thing was, you know, we look back at history. We look at at what I mean. While it doesn't dictate our practice, we can look back and and learn from what what went on earlier. And as you said, you know, there's nothing new under the sun. 
know, it's just one heresy after another being repeated today. It's just in a little different form, maybe. But Yeah, it's packaged sometimes a little differently. Uh, the Arians of the early church, uh, you know, look a little different than the Jehovah's Witnesses of today, but they're fundamentally just the same old heresy regurgitated again. Um, so we also wanted to talk uh, briefly about um, the degeneration of scholarship and biblical, um, in-depth biblical studies and knowledge of original languages and things like that uh, within the Anabaptist movement. Uh, some of the early Anabaptists uh, were uh, well-educated and knew the original languages and were biblical scholars. Um, but um, that kind of degenerated as, uh, as it kind of went through. Uh, can you kind of jump in a little bit and, and talk about that a little bit? Well, I'll say that after the first generation, you don't see a whole lot of scholars in, in the movement. And, I mean, once again, the, their same excuse, you know, due to persecution that, you know, they were hunted. But there was also other factors, yeah, as we've seen, you know, whenever, anytime you have the inward, the inner word over the outer word, I mean, there, if the outer word isn't that important, there's no need to study yeah, so. yeah, absolutely. And and even after the persecution of the Anabaptists kind of settled down, um, many of them, due to kind of their monasticism and their asceticism, uh, rejected a lot of the uh, institutions of higher learning. And uh, and many of them, like my own experience in, in those communities, many Amish, for example, don't get an education much beyond an eighth grade education. And even a lot of conservative Mennonites would would even do that. Well, and that also comes in through through their uh, position of of non resistance. As we said earlier, you know, it was a demon demonization of the government. Yeah. And so, and in that way, you know, if you look at all the higher learning, it was it was it was the government the government schools, and. They, so they just rejected that. They yeah. completely rejected higher learning in that sense. Yeah. I think uh, a lot of them would say uh, <laughs> many uh, Amish would do this more than maybe Mennonites, but but uh, many Amish think that uh, to um, to really study and to know the Bible only leads to uh, pride, I believe. Yeah. yeah. It's very prideful if you were sure what the Bible said. Yeah. If you really knew what the Bible said, it would only lead to pride. And uh, that's it's actually uh, it's quite sad that that is uh, that is the view of many of them. Uh, many of the Anabaptists after the the early radical reformers um, didn't even know the original languages and made no effort to even learn them. Um, and that even follows even up to today. It's very rare to find, um, especially along the more conservative lines of the Anabaptists to find any sort of knowledge of original languages and, and systematic types of theologies. Well, yeah, I mean, they they followed, like, the Amish would have actually taken the German language and used that. I mean, their, their sermons are in German. Yeah. And they would have made that the new language of the Bible, and they yeah. followed that instead of the original language. Very similar to how the Catholics do with the Latin Vulgate. Yeah, very, very similar. Yeah. Um, in fact, you will find uh, probably some more backwards Amish that probably think Jesus spoke German. Uh, yes, you would. Yeah. Yeah, that's uh, it's, it's just unfortunate. Uh, 
And so, you know, they don't they don't have a background in the, the original languages. They don't uh, do extensive study. Now, you know, I do encounter some um, Amish and some Mennonites that do read their Bibles and um, and uh, do study their Bibles. Uh, but uh, those are not your necessarily your norm uh, among the Mennonites. You do see more um, reading of the Bible, uh, but so many of them simply read it through the paradigm of their tradition. Uh, in much the same way as, as Catholics that I've encountered that read their Bible also. I mean, I have I have family on my wife's side who, um, uh, my in-laws, that, uh, yeah, they've read through the entire Bible, but they, they simply read it through their Roman Catholic uh, lenses, and they don't... Uh, and they they don't see the clear teaching of the gospel. They're blinded. Yeah, yeah. Uh, some of my family have some, you know, some of their family that's Roman Catholic today, and they were just telling me this is a couple of years ago, where they were reading through, and they're like, "Hey, did you know Jesus had brothers and sisters?" They, they I mean, this person was probably fifty five, sixty years old. Yeah, yeah, and didn't didn't know that, and um. That's you know that's the paradigm. Uh, many of the uh, Anabaptists, uh, it, it's it's very interesting from my own family. In in talking with them, they have such blinders on. They are so absolutely convinced that they are the church of the first century. That they are they are the early church. They're the they are just like the followers of the apostles, and they are the return to that pure church. And when anyone challenges that, they just they don't um, they don't really even have the capacity to to even want to to look at scripture. Uh, many of them uh, will just because of this absolutely being convinced that they are the early church will just refuse to um, to even look at much of anything else. Well, yeah, let me say addressing the Amish. If you haven't, as soon as they hear, you know, you have a, another view or you're from a different church, like, they go into shutdown mode because yeah. every other church is... Is, is false. It, well, I mean, they're at least a, a little bit in error because yeah. it's not the Amish church, so... Yeah, yeah. and um, I mean, I... And I'll let Kevin kind of jump a little bit more because I still... I do have family that are also Amish, but... Um, um, but uh, there, there used to be, I, I would say, probably um, a little bit longer, maybe fifty more years ago, that there was many Amish that believed that salvation was only within the Amish, um, within the Amish Church. There was no salvation outside of it. However, I think that that view has changed uh, in the last uh, more recent years, uh, where they would look at other people as being Christians, obviously not as pure in their Christianity as they are. But um, they would uh, think that there will be people saved outside of the Amish church. But um, but a lot of that has more to do with influence of postmodernism, I would say, than it has to do with actually um, biblical doctrine. Any thoughts on that? Well, yeah, I'll say my grandfather would have, he would have hardcore, and he definitely held that, you know, there was no salvation outside of the Amish church. Yeah, yeah. Whereas some of the uh, uh, Amish today would not necessarily hold to that. I I, I have Amish family who would uh, believe that I'm a Christian uh, and believe that uh, 
I'm saved. Yeah, I want to say in the last 20, 30 years, that has really, really changed. There's been a movement on that. Yes. I don't know it's been a... Um, if there's been a, more of a purity of doctrine within the Amish church, I don't think that's necessarily where it's gone to. It's it's more of the... There, you would actually be surprised at how influenced they actually are by a lot of postmodern philosophy when it comes to, you know, we just can't really be certain about a lot of things. Yeah, it's, it's seeped in everywhere. Yeah, it's amazing that it's actually even gotten into communities like the Amish and the, and the Mennonites, so... Uh, yeah, let's let's briefly talk about um, the the split between the Amish and Mennonites, and uh, talk about uh, Jacob Ammon. Can you tell us a little bit about Jacob Ammon? Well, Jacob Ammon was an uh, unschooled, low country boy, and he became a pastor in the Anabaptist movement. Mennonite movement, yeah. Well, it wasn't Mennonite then; it would have been Swiss Brethren. As okay, it. that's that's true. Yeah, and uh. So uh, he was ordained as a bishop, I think, and from there he uh, he got started studying the word, and and he. One thing we, we, not a lot of Mennonites talk about was, Mendel Simons was actually, and Dirk Phillips, I think, was even more so, when really strict on the ban on yeah. the excommunication. Can can you kind of fill in our listeners what what we mean by the ban? What what, what is the ban? Well, it was they was following, you know. Paul would have wrote about excommunicating Matthew eighteen. Yeah, Jesus yeah. himself spoke about excommunicating, but they took it, you know, to every little thing. I mean, they took it to the extremes, way past biblical. And then there was the argument over, you know, can we eat or associate in any way with those who are excommunicated? And then, and you even seen like some part of penance from the Roman Catholic, you know, the, the sacrament yeah. of penance involved in their view. You know, you were excommunicated, and and then there had to be, you know, signs of of repentance. You know, there had to be works. You know, signs. they had to do particular things yes. in order to. To be forgiven. Yeah, know, I mean, it w- it wasn't, yeah. you know, an instant forgiveness, you know, you know, when it was brought up in forgiveness. And so there was lots of schisms and stuff over how the strict use of the band, you know, how to actually flesh that out. So, Yeah, the there was three uh, things that really um, that uh, that really broke the. Uh, the Jacob Ammonites off on their own from the rest of the uh, Anabaptists and the and the uh, ones who followed Menno Simons, and that is um, uh, the first one was shunning those who had been banned. At what level that you would do that, and also whether liars should be excommunicated, and if uh, people could be saved who did not follow God's word. In other words, the last one was whether they could consider those saved who had sided with the Anabaptists. And had uh, helped them in times of persecution, um, had uh, w- would have been s- very sympathetic to many of their views, uh, but if they did not become rebaptized, um, the that uh, whether or not they could they could tell them that they were saved or not if they had not become rebaptized. Basically, it was those who were sympathetic towards Anabaptist views but had actually not been baptized 
could they actually tell them that they were saved or not? Um, and that is where among the Anabaptists, there is some views of uh, of baptismal regeneration where they would hold to that you have to be baptized in order to be saved. Well, I think that was part of the Reformers' big re- reaction to the Anabaptists. And as you know, Anabaptists is re-baptizers is what it stood for. And I, you, I think you definitely, as you what you just read there, you see, you've seen traces of baptismal regeneration. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And the other thing that's uh, to be noted is that they actually referred to these people as good-hearted people. Um, and they, they didn't, they were, there was arguments among the Anabaptists, whether these good hearted people that, that were very sympathetic towards the Anabaptist views, uh, but just had not engaged in the act of baptism, should they consider them saved? Is there a problem there with uh, thinking that there's good hearted people? Well, I'll say, I think Paul would definitely disagree with him in Romans three. Yes, I, I would, <laughs> I would agree with that. Um, so, um, alrighty. Well, I think that's uh, what we had for today on the Anabaptist. Was there anything else, Kevin, that you wanted to talk about before we kind of wrap this up? No, I think that'll do it. Okay. Well, uh, thank you guys for uh, joining us uh, on this particular episode. Um, uh, we'll probably have one more. We'll we'll go into some more of our personal experiences within the movement. We uh, we uh, uh, have gotten into that um, a little bit on this particular episode, but. Uh, uh, hopefully this was encouraging and helpful to you for those of you that are maybe looking into the Anabaptists, looking at their history, and maybe you're an Anabaptist. And maybe you um, uh, came across these videos and um, and are searching and and are looking into what the Bible says about salvation and about, what, what, um, about God's grace in salvation and about how none of our efforts are are meritorious to God. As it says in Isaiah, all our righteousness, all our good works are as filthy rags before God. And we are only saved by the grace of God. And we are justified through faith in Christ alone. And um, we trust in Christ as the Savior who will perfectly save us and um, give us his righteousness so that when we stand before God on Judgment Day, it will be on the merits of Christ that uh, we are judged. And he was perfect, wasn't he, Kevin? Yes, he was. He's a perfect Savior. He's a perfect Savior. He perfectly saves. He gives us eternal life, and we will not perish. Praise God. Praise God for the true gospel. So thank you guys for uh, joining us today, and uh, hopefully this was helpful, and God willing, uh, we will see you guys next week. Thanks for joining us.